As the year comes to a close, state and national elected officials look ahead to a political landscape that is only slightly changed from the one they left behind in 2022. Republicans, most political pundits, and even many Democrats had forecast massive success for the GOP in the midterm elections for many reasons. A president with low approval ratings, an economy that has a toyed with recession, and the tradition of voters moving against the party in control of the White House. But such was not the case. Democrats held off a Republican red wave. While they barely lost control of the House of Representatives, they added to their strength in the Senate while gaining governor seats and strength in state legislatures. Today, we continue a discussion about the midterm elections with two experts, Dr. Sarah Fisher, a political science professor at Emory Henry College, and Joe Patana, a political contributor to this program and to WEHC. They are talking with me online today. Thank you both for joining me, Sarah and Joe. Thanks for having us. Good to be with you again. I want to begin by congratulating both of you on how you forecast these midterm elections. I went back and listened to our discussion prior to the midterms, and I was just blown away by how accurate you both were in assessing what the outcome could be in this. You were both cautious, and you were very accurate in that you encouraged caution as we think about what could happen during these midterms. And I remember, Sarah, you saying specifically that you were skeptical that there would really be much change as a result of these elections. And indeed, there really wasn't in the long run. Although the House has changed hands, going from Democrat to Republican, you saw Democrats gaining some governorships and some state legislatures. And Joe, I remember you saying that you were doubtful that the Republicans would gain more than 20 seats. And indeed, I don't think they gain more than 11 or 12. So mm -hmm. congratulations. I think you were probably the most accurate prognosticators that I witnessed anywhere in journalism, because it seemed like leading up to the election, we had a lot of pundits who were really forecasting a major red wave, and that didn't transpire. And I think they should have heeded your advice. So I want to ask you, Sarah, what you thought were maybe the issues that played an important role in the outcomes and why they may have been more accurate predictors than anything in determining what was going to transpire. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it was we saw a little bit of a moderation, um, maybe nationwide. Um, that's a hard thing to say, right, because all politics are local. So we didn't see that in some races. Um, but, you know, voters obviously care about the economy. But if the economy was your number one thing that you cared about, then the Democrats should have lost by more. So clearly things like the um, overturn of Roe was important. Um, also thinking about how former President Trump was backing candidates who were um, denying the results of a free and fair election. That was clearly problematic and people, not in every case, but there were, I think, more rejections of those candidates than what folks maybe had predicted. And so I think they, you see sort of something different in this election um, maybe a little bit um, versus some previous ones. And so we'll sort of see what happens in the next couple cycles. But in terms of like where the Republican Party or where the Democratic Party might be going, 
this might be an important one to sort of look back on when we're thinking about 2024. What about you, Joe? How do you think the issues shape the results of the midterms in ways that we didn't expect? Well, I think the, as we were looking at it, we didn't know how much impact certain specific things were going to have on the, on the results. And um, I think the, the, it seems like the Roe decision uh, seems to have had more of an impact than we thought having, you know, having residual impact when we got to November. Um, and then I, I think that what Sarah pointed out about the repudiation of um, some of the candidates that former President Trump had um, had supported uh, certainly didn't help the Republican cause. Um, uh, I, I was talking to a, a, a colleague in, in, in Arkansas who was very involved with the Clinton campaigns when uh, when he ran for governor and, and, and president. They were kicking around this idea that was this possibly a uh, not just a, a chance for the voters to vote against the current incumbent in the White House, which is usually what drives a midterm election. But to some extent, some voters were voting against the other, the, the previous president who claims we, he should still be in the White House. And so that had a moderating effect because there were a lot of races uh, that um, that went the went blue instead of red in very close um, districts. Uh, and more of those were in, in districts where uh, former President Trump had supported a candidate. This happened in, at the House level. It happened at the uh, at the Senate level as well. And so I think those two things were were factors. The, one, the other thing I point out, I think the polls were they were taking into account the fact that they had uh, missed short on the Republican vote and were uh, taking steps to moderately adjust their numbers based on that. And I don't think they needed to. I think they the the corrections were not necessary. The the effect from prior from the last couple of elections didn't happen, and so that made some of the polls that were close but leaned red. They actually the races turned out blue. That's a good point, Joe. Sarah, I'm wondering what you think about how we think about polls going forward. There were a number of polls, a number of state polls I noticed that were really forecasting that the Senate would change hands, which it didn't do. So how do we think of the polls? Can we still trust them or how should we caution ourselves as we're examining yeah, them? I think that's a good question. Um, I mean, this is something we talk about in my statistics for social science class is that, you know, if something's within the margin of error, it's within the margin of error, right? So I don't, I haven't dug into the polling to see if any of them were sort of, you know, way outside the margin of error for being wrong, but I kind of doubt it, right? So, I mean, a close race is a close race. And, you know, when when I think sometimes when people see, oh, you know, there's a 55% chance of someone winning, they say, oh, like, well, that person's going to win. And if you see a 55% chance of rain on your, you know, in the forecast, you don't assume, you know, it's more likely it's going to rain, but it's not for sure it's going to rain. Um, and so I do think that pollsters are learning more and more about how to do good work in this political climate. Um, but another thing about to defend pollsters here about elections is that, you know, for weather forecasters, we have weather every hour of the day, right? <laughs> um, but for elections, we don't have elections every day, right? You don't have as much data to work with. And so I do think that, you know, they're trying to do different mm -hmm. adjustments, um, but I, I'm doubtful that they were that far off. 
Well, Joe, I'm wondering if the problem isn't so much the polls, but how people interpret and talk around them, you know, how they try to extrapolate some conclusion based on them, which, as Sarah says, is perhaps very difficult to do because, like the weather, opinions can change on a daily basis. Sure. And uh, opinions can change. And the, the environment two years later can be different from what it was two years earlier. Um, what I what I like to do with polls is I uh, I look at the uh, real clear politics averages, mm-hmm. and that 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 kind of takes some of the ones that are that skew red or skew blue, which which there were in most of the races, some polls like that. It just gets down to a to, to a sort of statistical consensus, and um, that was very close in uh, in in a number of these races. Um, they were leaning a number of them were leaning very slightly red, so it would have been well inside the margin of error. So either either outcome would have been equally predicted. Um, my, my thought was that the, the, the close ones are going to basically break 50-50, and, uh, and, and they didn't. They broke pretty much universally blue. Uh, and I think it was because, the you know, had the had some of these polls not corrected quite as much for previous errors, it probably the average would have been uh, more to the, to the blue side. But given... The, the, the fact that things are changing from year to year uh, and, and given how close the, the, the numbers are and how, how very divided many of these states are, uh, I think they did they did as well as could be expected. I, I, I commend them for having actually done a nice job. Well, having said all that, I think a lot of people just anticipated that Republicans would do better because as is traditional, the party in power in the white house tends to lose seats some usually a lot of them you know dozens of them but that didn't happen this time around so sarah what does that mean is was that a failure of republicans was that a success for democrats or were there other reasons why something like that sort of broke against the trends and created the results that we had i mean i think if anyone says I know exactly what's happening in American politics today they're probably lying and that (laughs) you know we're in this moment where sort of the the conventional wisdom about who wins and loses seats in midterms you know so for example Biden has actually put forth many policies that like if you poll Americans on those policies they quite like them and yet he continues to have quite low approval ratings. So that doesn't really make any, you know, that's a little bit odd. Um, You've got, you know, Georgia, I think is a fascinating case where statewide Governor Kemp, who's a Republican, won, you know, pretty easily. Um, You know, it was still a close race, don't get me wrong, but, you know, won without too much question. And then you had a runoff in which you had another statewide election where, Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, won, right? So you have a state like Georgia, where if you'd told someone 10 years ago that they're going to have two Democratic senators, I think someone would have laughed in your face, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think that there's, we are in a moment where I think things are sort of shifting in U.S. politics, even thinking for another example of like Kirsten Sinema just said that she's not going to, you know, she's, you know, going to be independent, right? So there's some odd things happening in U.S. politics. Um, And so- yeah, like I said, I think if, if you say I know exactly what's happening in U.S. politics, I think you're probably lying. Joe, I want to ask you the same question, though. To what extent do you think one or both of the parties are doing something right or something wrong 
or is the ground, as Sarah's suggesting, just shifting so fast that it's really hard to say what's going on? Well, the, the ground is definitely shifting very fast, and uh, they're both trying to figure out what to, what to do. The, um, the Republican side seems to be grappling with the issue that uh, President Trump is a, is a very, very, very big presence, and um, he has a very, very significant and loyal base of followers. Um, but the it does not seem that that is a winning strategy for them, especially in in many of these close uh, states and many of these close races. And so they're they're grappling with the issue of okay, um, how can we how can we maybe move on past former President Trump uh, in a way that does not alienate that that block? You know, the the dilemma for them seems to be if we alienate that block, we can't win. But if we cater exclusively to that to that block and and let former president trump drive the agenda then we can't win because we alienate too many middle of the road voters so that's that's the challenge they're having the struggle they're having to even name a speaker uh, is kind of indicative of that you know they the uh, naming a naming a speaker of the house normally does not resemble the trying to to form a coalition government in israel or italy but it kind of does right now and uh, and that's uh, that's a challenge um, for for the for the Democrats. I think they're feeling pretty good about the situation that they they managed to emerge. I wouldn't say unscathed, but close to unscathed, with a stronger, somewhat slightly stronger position in the Senate and losing control of the House, but uh, but by so little that they still are going to have a, a fair bit of, of uh, power to, to to drive the agenda. But they're still they're still. Uh, Dealing with the fact that uh, President Biden has a pretty high disapproval rating, uh, and uh, and that these races were were very I mean, a lot of these races were very close. It could have they could have gone uh, either way. And Sarah, well, what does history tell us about this kind of moment? Have we ever experienced uh, something like this with regard to how the parties now have to adjust to kind of a, a new climate? It's been a long time, I think, since we've had a midterm that's kind of gone against the trend. What does history tell us about this moment and how perhaps political parties have dealt with a similar kind of a situation? Yeah, I mean, political scientists and historians talk about these this idea of a critical juncture, right, or a critical election where you have this moment where you have this election that sort of you know, turns out maybe not in a way that people think, um, and then parties sort of have to adjust. Um, and part of it is the parties sort of making choices, but then part of it is also the electorate changing too. I think it's too early to tell, which is kind of an annoying answer, <laughs> whether this is a, you know, sort of true critical election that's going to shift how things look. But we have sort of a series of things, I think, that make it possible for there to be a critical sort of moment or a series of critical moments here for thinking about U.S. politics. You know, you've got, you know, high inflation, but then you also have sort of the effects of the pandemic. You have changing demographics. You've got, you know, you've got all of these things that are happening. Um, and so it seems like, you know, the the underlying currents sort of suggest that we're going to see some things that maybe we weren't expecting. And that brings me to the next question that I have for you. And that is, given the nature of Washington right now and the political control in the houses of Congress, 
what are the implications for governance going forward? Are we looking at anything getting done or are we looking at stalemate? What are your thoughts, Sarah? I mean, I really think part of it matters on who's the Speaker of the House, right? So if Kevin McCarthy can get, what is it, the five representatives that say they're not going to vote for him to vote for him, um, that, you know, if he wants to put forth a more sort of moderate kind of agenda, maybe there can be something done. That being said, I am not optimistic about that. Um, I think there's probably not going to be anything really getting done. Um, now, that said, in the Senate, um, even with cinema, the Democrats still have more power in the Senate than they did in the last two years. And so things like judicial appointments should be much easier to get through. But I really don't expect any blockbuster sort of policies coming through or really much change on the federal level. Joe, is it important for Congress and particularly the Republicans, to get anything done? Do they have anything at stake if it's stalemate? This is kind of the the, the situation of the, the dog chasing the truck. You know, what's he going to do when he catches it? The Republicans now have control of the House. Uh, to the extent that nothing gets done, uh, it gives a very powerful argument to the Democrat side to say, well, look, they're, they're in there and they basically are a bunch of obstructionists. Uh, the things that they've proposed are are unacceptable. They're too extreme. And again, not saying that that's what will happen, but it, it could very well be that some of the things that McCarthy has to uh, allow to move forward would uh, would be controversial to the to the broader electorate. And if if they're unwilling to compromise because they're afraid of uh, alienating the the more uh, conservative, uh, I would say, pro-Trump base. Um, the, the, the argument could be thrown in their face that uh, you basically you have the House now. You've done nothing with it for the last two years. So why should we give you any more power? And, and that's the that's the dilemma. And then the other more practical from the benefit of the country is if there are things that need to be legislated, there's policy that needs to be made um, to the extent that they can't make it happen. Forget the politics. That's bad for the country. Sir, I'm wondering if part of the problem that Kevin McCarthy is having in rallying support for his speakership is the fact that he and the Republicans don't really have a clear agenda. It, it seems to me that it would be easier to rally around a leader if they knew that that leader was leading them somewhere. Is that just me or is that perhaps one of his problems? I don't think he would say that that's one of his problems. Um you know, all parties have, all political parties have internal infighting. And I think that I wouldn't be surprised if he imagined when he was, you know, planning to run for speaker, that he was going to have a more substantial majority in the House. Um, and so that he was going to be able to lose a couple of Republican votes, right, for a speakership and just like, ah, you know, I still want to do this. I'm still going to get the most votes. But because it's so tight, you know, I think that I wouldn't be surprised if that was maybe not a part of his calculus for wanting to be Speaker of the House. And I mean, the Democrats ran into a similar thing, right? When Nancy Pelosi said that she was going to be Speaker, there were Democrats who said, we don't want you to be Speaker. And she sort of had a, a agreement with folks that she wasn't going to, you know, be in Democratic leadership for forever. And to her, you know, credit, she said, you know, she stepped down. I mean, she also wouldn't have been the Speaker anyways. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that 
you know, there's internal infighting in all parties. And I think that you're just seeing it for this one, um, in part because the house is so tight. So it is a very tight division between the parties and it's complicating things for McCarthy. What are the options? And this is perhaps a question for both of you, especially, Sarah, because of your understanding of the political structure. What are the options for the Republicans if they're not going to accept Kevin McCarthy? I think that that way lies madness, right? <laughs> Further, you know, if that's the way they want to go, you got to get someone else. And there are folks who have said that they're going to they're going to run for speaker if he doesn't do it or if he doesn't get the votes, right? But I just can't imagine a scenario in which he he doesn't peel off a few Republicans who say they're not going to vote for him. I think another kind of stranger option, and I don't expect this to happen either, but it's maybe a fun thought experiment, is to try to get some Democrats to vote for him, right? I think that if he could say, hey, if you don't vote for me, you're going to get someone that you like even less. Um, you know, I think that that's not a horrible plan, um, but... It is going to be interesting to see if folks who sort of have really come out and said, I'm not going to vote for him, if they end up and do it. But just as a side note, like if you don't have a Speaker of the House, the House grinds to a halt. Like you must have a Speaker of the House in order for business to occur. Um, and so I think that if somehow he doesn't get elected, I think the optics of that look very bad for the Republicans. And I think they want to avoid that at all cost. Um, think, so, yeah. Joe, do you think, given what she said, that Kevin McCarthy is likely to be speaker? Then it's just a matter of time. Um, I, I think so, and I, I I do think that. First of all, I agree with what Sarah said. You've got to have a speaker. Um, and uh, while potentially the the idea of getting some Democrats to vote for uh, for him as speaker uh, would would be positive in the sense that this might be a the beginnings of a of a more uh, coalition type uh, government. Um, I, I suspect that the the folks that were basically thwarted by having that happen would be extremely vocal uh, in their in their opposition, and uh, and uh, it would fan the flames of the division that that we're seeing. So uh, I am I am thinking and hoping just for this for the sake of of uh, of order order in in, in in government that they will they'll figure it out that they'll be able to get enough folks to to get him the speakership uh, and and we won't have you know utter chaos as as would happen otherwise. Finally, I want us to talk about individual politicians who perhaps have emerged stronger than they were before the midterms, stronger in terms of their political prospects. Sarah, could you name perhaps at least one Republican and one Democrat that you think have strengthened their position politically, maybe for a larger national office or for whatever reason they might want to be stronger? I mean, I think the obvious um, Republican is um, DeSantis in Florida. I mean, you can have us on in a couple months, um, but I mean, there's he's running for president, right? And so he one-handedly and is going to run for president. And so his, you know, political sort of future after this election um, is, you know, better than it was before. Um, so definitely DeSantis as someone who is going to go places or wants to go places and it's looking better for him to do so. 
Um, and I don't mean this to be sort of a cop-out answer for the Democrats, but I think in terms of the issues, I think that there is an opportunity for the Democrats to have a discussion about um, reproductive issues that would be good for them. Um, and so I think that if they've learned anything from the last, you know, from the midterms, but then also some ballot initiatives, um, you know, I think that that is an issue that the majority of the country is actually more in line with the Democratic platform on those issues than with the Republican platform on those issues. And if the Republican or if the Democratic Party wants to make that a thing, um, I think that that's an opportunity for them to um, win some more votes in some close elections. Yeah, I'm wondering if they might actually want to tie initiatives related to reproductive rights to actual elections. I think what happened in Michigan, wasn't there at a ballot initiative related to reproductive rights, which really drove their voters to the polls and gave, I think, Governor Whitmer a, a much more substantial lead than she was expecting. At least that's what I'm hearing others say. So, Joe, perhaps you could take off from that. What are your thoughts about people who've done well and have lifted their sights and um, issues that have helped them? Well, um, first of all, Sarah, I, I totally agree with you with Ron DeSantis having benefited tremendously from uh, um, from the um, from the results of this election, uh, Florida now is at this point is is a solid bright red state, um, and um, and his national stature has significantly uh, grown with that. Uh, he he appeals to a you know a much broader base of of, of voters than perhaps uh, the other standard bearer for the party, and um, and so he definitely is well positioned. Um, although the um, again, it's it's the question as to whether uh, former President Trump will will play nice and allow that transition to happen, or whether he will he will uh, fight. And if he fights, even though uh, DeSantis is definitely on the ascendancy, um, it's going to be a very challenging picture for him to to uh, emerge from a Republican with leadership of a Republican Party that has a. a a snowball's chance of actually being successful in two years uh, if the other block is alienated. On the Democrat side, I would say uh, uh, the, the the biggest winner is uh, President Biden. Uh, he came out of this with an improved position in the Senate. Uh, he came out with a uh, losing the House, but by the uh, smallest of, of, of margins, as you mentioned earlier. Um, I expected, based on a model I run, that we'd see about 20 seats. Uh, and um, and the uh, the Re Republicans only gained maybe 10, 11. I think there's one, the one seat in Colorado is possibly still in in uh, in, in in play in a recount. But uh, the the fact is they did pretty well under his under his uh, his leadership, and he can make the case that I'm um, I, I managed to get some things through in the in the the, the first two years. Um, I managed to lead our party to to not have a disastrous outcome in the midterm election, even though there were some uh, economic problems. And as Jim Carville used to say, you know, it's the economy stupid. So by that by that mantra, it should have got much worse than it did. Puts him in a strong position to to try to pull, uh, the, to coalesce the forces for his reelection in two years. And I agree on the issue that there there's a number of issues that the Democrats probably are, are, are better aligned with 
the, the the mainstream of the of the voters, and if they um, are able to to do that, it puts them in a good position going forward for two years from now. I've been talking today with Dr. Sarah Fisher. She is a political science professor at Emory and Henry College, and our other political expert is Joe Batana, a regular contributor to WEHC. Thank you both for talking with me today. Thanks again. Thanks, Dirk and Sarah. Good talking to you both, and um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to both of you. We'll see you in next year. Yeah, thank you, Joe. And you have been listening to Together to Get There, the show dedicated to economic and community development in Southwest Virginia. And you have been listening to WHC, the voice of Southwest Virginia. Thank you for listening.